Let's pray as we begin our time together in the Word of God. Our Father, we've been in various ways thus far in this service speaking to you in prayer and in song. We've lifted up our voices and our hearts to you. And now as we approach your word, we beg you to speak to us. Tell us what we need for our lives and for our souls. We profess that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from, the, from your mouth. Your word is life. Your word is truth. Would you make your word alive in our hearts in a deeper and more profound way? Would you speak to us by your spirit through your word? Give us understanding. At certain places, change our minds that would lead us to repentance. At other places, give us more conviction that would work itself in conformity to Christ. And so we need your help. Distractions abound. Less than ideal circumstances are before us, and yet you desire to hold our attention. So allow your word to go forth with much power, much clarity. And so to that end, we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, O oh God, would make the sermon that is heard far more effective than the one that is preached. Grant us joy as we turn to your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, no one likes a fake. No one. Even though we try to maintain a good reputation before others, we despise counterfeits and we crave authenticity. Everyone wants to keep it real. And yet, sadly, all too many people are content to hide the real. I wonder what people would say if I were to go around to your friends and your church family, your biological family, your coworkers, your neighbors, and just began to interview people about you. Tell me about this person's loves. Tell me about their life. Tell me about their actions. I wonder what would be said about you. If we're honest, I wonder how many of us are driven by that. What would others say and what do others think of us? And I wonder if God were to grant me access to sort of be taken up and go before him in his throne room and just to begin to ask him those same questions about you. God, how do you see this person's loves? What do you think about their actions, about their life? I wonder what that report would look like. And I wonder how different those two reports would be. I wonder how much of our lives is consumed about keeping up an appearance with others all the while neglecting what it is that God thinks about our character. You see, there's such silliness to faking when there is something so grand on the line. Something as grand as being redeemed by and restored to the creator of all things and living forever with him. What better could we leverage and live our lives for? And if I'm honest, I must confess that oftentimes I put way too much stock in what others think about me. Sadly, at the neglect of what God thinks about me. If you're a Christian, I'm not talking about your position before him. Praise be to God, the work of Jesus. I'm talking about your day in and day out rhythms, your life, your actions, your loves, your desires, your thoughts, and your words. I'm tempted to put more stock into what others think, and, and I think, what's the end of it all? Is the end of it all to stand before the Lord exposed and look back and say, well, at least everyone else thought I was something different? Is, is the point of it all to, to so deceive people, to think that I'm running healthily a race and yet all the while I'm dying on the inside? Or maybe worst case scenario, 
I die and I get hell. And I have the thought, well, at least everyone still living thinks I'm in heaven. Is that worth it? Is that the goal? Friends, the invitation this morning is to be honest about who we are. And our passage this morning is intended to serve our souls. James wants to pastor us this morning to encourage us to be discerning about our lives, but also to warn us against deception. To be discerning about our lives and to warn us against deception. And both that offer of discernment and that warning of deception are expressions of God's mercy to us. The fact that this word finds its way into our hearts and our lives is a gift of grace to us. You see, James is going to make clear for the rest of this letter, authentic faith devotes itself to God in holiness and to others in service. Authentic faith devotes devotes itself to to God in holiness and to others in service. And last week, Nick served us by preaching with such clarity about what James understood to be invaluable to these scattered, persecuted Christians. James is writing these scattered, persecuted Christians, letting them know that they they ought to seek to persevere under trial because there is a reward that awaits. Something so much greater than the temporary hardship they're enduring. But not only to persevere, but James is writing to encourage them to turn to God for the wisdom that they lack. If they don't have that perspective about their trials, to turn to God is not only to be believed, but also to be obeyed. The word of God is not only to be believed, but also to be obeyed. And so we'll have two sermon points this morning. Because other passages later on in James are going to unpack more fully, verses 26 and 27, we're not going to spend a lot of time there. So that's just warning and clearance that while the first point is going to take the majority of the sermon, you should not fear that the second point will take as long as the first one. Two sermon points. And for you note takers, each of the two sermon points will have three sub points. And so I will define those subpoints by A, B, and C. The main points, one and two. More information than you wanted to know. Let's look at the first point. How does James make clear that the word of God is not only to be believed, but also to be obeyed? Number one, to receive the word is to obey the word. To receive the word is to obey the word. And we see this in verses 22 through 25. Again, I would point you back to last week's sermon. In order to have a biblical understanding of what it means to receive the word with humility. The word of God, the gospel that goes forth. Those words stand over us and they judge us. We don't stand over the word of God and judge it. No, it stands over us. And so we come to the word with humility. It's possible, and this is so scary in our day, it's possible to gather together with the church for a service. It's possible to tune in online and to watch a service. It's, po- it's possible to listen religiously, de- devoutly to sermons from other preachers online. It's possible to read your Bible every day and yet not receive the word. And so James encourages these scattered, persecuted Christians to come hungry to the word, to receive the word, asking the Lord by his spirit to make your heart receptive to the word. You see, the more humbly we come to the word, the more we will receive from the word. The more proud we come to the word, the less we will receive from the word. And in order to convince us of that main point, that to receive the word is to obey the word, point number one, James gives us three helps. Subpoint A, what are the three helps that he gives us in order to understand and to see that to receive the word is to obey the word? A, he gives us a command with a warning. He gives us a command with a warning. We see this in verse 22. 
but prove yourselves doers of the word. That's the command. And not merely hearers who delude themselves. Other translations will read who deceive themselves. And here we arrive at the heart of James' pastoral concern, really with this whole letter. And arguably the best known verse in this letter is verse 22. The command is to prove yourself to be a word doer, not merely a word hearer. Prove yourself. Be a doer of the word. Now, some people jump. They open James chapter one. They're familiar with this verse. They go to verse 22 and it says, but prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. And they begin to think, okay, then what James is doing is he's minimizing and he's, dis he's discouraging all of this need for biblical doctrine and knowledge. We don't need to be hearers. All we need to be are doers. And again, context is king when we read the Bible. James has just labored to make the point in verses one and verses 19 through 21 about our need for biblical knowledge. And so James would state very clearly, biblical knowledge and understanding is essential, but it's not sufficient. Biblical knowledge is, is essential, but it's not sufficient. Merely hearing without being a word doer is what he says in verse 22. That's self-deception. And that's the warning. The warning is this. Merely hearing God's word is not sufficient evidence for saving faith. It's not enough to just sort of pronounce yourself as a follower of Jesus all the while your life is not transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And so James makes eye contact with the original audience. And this morning, he desires to make eye contact with you and I. And he wants to warn us. One commentator said, true knowledge is the prelude to action. And it is obedience to the word that counts in the end. You see, the gospel must be proclaimed, and received and obeyed. God's word must be preached, received, and practiced. And, and, and all James is doing is echoing the words of Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Not you will know my commands, but you will keep my commands. Jesus teaches on this. Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 through 23. So every good tree bears good fruit, and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does... The will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And I will, I will declare then to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You see, friends, you and I can't distance ourselves from this warning as though it doesn't apply to us. In fact, I think the longer that you are a Christian, the more subtle this temptation becomes. To be okay just to have massive amounts of intake of God's word. I hear it all the time. I'm reading it more and more. And yet to think that because we're learning new things, that somehow we don't have to obey or apply it. And so the longer that you walk with the Lord, I do think this is a growing temptation. Is that the application and the obedience looked really, really pronounced early on in the Christian life. And now I know most of it. Oh, may that not be the posture of our hearts. Knowledge divorced from obedience has the potential to puff up, to deceive. The word deceive means to be blinded to the reality of our true condition. 
You see, it's possible to assume that we are more mature, that we're growing in maturity simply because we know more information. And James is saying knowledge is essential, but knowledge is not sufficient. And so if the more information that you're learning is not leading into, it's not translating into more godliness and more faithfulness and more obedience, then James says, be very careful. You may be self-deceived. And I think there's some level we were, we're always going to know a little bit more than we're able to apply, but we need to pay careful attention to assume that our knowledge of scripture isn't taking off while our obedience to scripture is lagging behind. We've said all along that James is intending to close the gap between what we know and how we live. And this is particularly tempting for us. It's particularly tempting for us because just think about how we progress from grade to grade in even our educational system. It's not on the basis of how much our lives are transformed by what we know. It's on the basis of what we know. And there are certain benchmarks that once you know enough, you then proceed to the next grade. And once you know enough, you go to the next grade. And once you know enough, and that works for an educational system, it spells disaster for the Christian life. To merely think that because I'm learning, that that means I'm growing in godliness. And not giving attention to the back end of knowledge, which is to ensure that it's changing my life. In the economy of God, growth and godliness is always measured by obedience. And I believe this is a particular word for our particular church. I praise God for the culture that is being set and that has been set among us where we, we uh, long for and we desire sound doctrine. We read good books. We listen to other online sermons. I'm thankful for the hunger for more doctrine. And yet, let's be careful, church, because this command and these warnings, they're needed for us. We need to ensure that what enthralls our heart most is not merely the thrill of learning something new, but the faithfulness to follow through and see our lives changed by what it is that we know. We need to give careful attention to the application of the word of God. And in order to ensure that they understand this command with a warning, he provides them with the second help, letter B, an illustration to avoid. An illustration to avoid. Listen to the illustration in verses 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. This is an interesting example to give. And if we're not careful, we can easily miss its meaning. What James is doing is reaching into the mundane and the regular rhythms of life in order to provide a metaphor. And the metaphor is simply looking into a mirror. And the point is to say that the one who looks into a mirror and walks away and forgets what he saw, that one is in peril. He is in danger. And when it talks about when he walks away and immediately forgets, verse 24... He's not making any type of reference towards the person's mental capacities to recall what they just saw. This isn't speaking of that. In, in fact, it's speaking of a willful disregard of what he has seen. So it's not that he looked in a mirror and he walked away and he really just doesn't have the mental capacities to remember. No, it's he looked in a mirror, he saw, he walked away and he willfully disregarded what he saw. What we're to avoid in this illustration is what this guy does. He ignores what the mirror revealed. And this illustration was meant to startle the original audience. And as I think about how this illustration falls on us, I can assume that not many of us are startled by looking into a mirror and walking away and forgetting what we saw. Each of us, I trust, look into mirrors on purpose 
not merely to admire what's there, and if that is why you look into a mirror, uh, that should not be the only reason you look into a mirror. Not, not merely to admire what we saw, but to assess the damage that's there. And to not merely assess the damage that's there, but also to think what can be done to fix the damage that's there. If you knew someone who consistently showed up to gatherings, whatever gathering it is, they consistently showed up and they were so unkept, like not just weird unkept, but maybe even gross unkept. And you were to get into a conversation with this person and say, did you look into the mirror this morning when you left? And, and just to be clear, I pray that we are those types of friends. <laughs> Not just the people that won't tell you how bad you look. There's a gracious way to do it. But that you will come alongside and did you look into the mirror today? How odd, how, how wrong would it be for someone to say, sure. And you look like this? Yeah, I saw it. No, 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 no. The point of seeing it in the mirror wasn't merely to take note of it. The point of seeing it in the mirror was to so correct everything that was off. And James is saying, so too with the word. The point of putting your face before this word is not merely to see it so you can say, okay, it's in there. But to so course correct the things that are off and how this serves as a mirror even to my own soul. Mirrors reveal flaws that must be addressed and adjusted. I have this habit, I've developed this habit that after I eat, I pull out my phone and I go to the camera app and I smile and I look to see if there's anything in my teeth. And if I find something still in my teeth, I don't leave it there. If I was gonna leave it there, it's purpose, purposeless to even look into the mirror to know that it is there. And again, if I could just commend being the type of friend that tells somebody when they have black bean skin covering one of their teeth. And if you don't do that, that's wrong. Not morally, it's just dirty. You see, what if we saw the food and we never adjusted? We never removed it. And when we don't apply what we read, when we don't apply what we hear preached, when we, don't when we don't apply what we are discussing, James is saying, we resemble this man. We deceive ourselves. Praise God for the Bible that you own. And if you do not own a Bible, it would be our joy to give you one to own, to make it yours, for you to study it, for you to read it, to you, for you to become familiar with it. Praise God for the sermons that we hear. And while those things are essential, they are not sufficient. The purpose of reading the Bible and the purpose of listening to sermons is to be a word doer. To not obey God's word is a failure to take God at his word. And so James not only gives his listeners a command with a warning, an illustration to avoid, but see, he gives them an example to imitate an example to imitate. Look at verse 25. But one who looks intently, this is gonna be a contrast to verses 23 and 24. The one who looks, walks away, forgets, verse 25. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. James wants to not only command and to warn, he also wants to inspire the enjoyment of the blessing of God's freeing word. Those who hear and those who apply the word of God to their lives will be blessed in this life and in the life to come. And it would be easy to overlook something that's embedded in verse 25. It really serves to be the impetus for how James can see this. And that is, we need to remember and we need to see and we need to understand James' understanding and his view of the scriptures. 
if, if you and I don't share James' view of the scriptures, that will affect how we read and how we respond to the scriptures. If you and I don't have a high view of the scriptures, it will affect our obedience to the scriptures. And James sees it in this way. Listen again in verse 25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law. So it is a law that is without error. Theological term for that would be, it is inerrant. The inerrancy of scripture. James sees this as perfect, having no errors. But it's not just that it's perfect. It's the law of liberty. There is a power in this perfect word that brings forth freedom. And again, think about this. This will affect our obedience to this word. It will encourage and inform our running to this word. He understands the law, the word to bring liberty to one's soul and one's life. James didn't view scripture as this boring sort of uh, made up, endless, burdensome commands that he must go to that would result in suffocating restrictions that would bring about guilt. No, that's not how James viewed the scriptures. And sadly, I wonder how many of us view the scriptures in a similar way to see them as guilt-inducing, list of heavy burdens, restrictions keeping us from joy. No, James says the word actually frees us it allows us to find joy. I would just encourage you this week, if you're thinking, if you have an upside down or a backwards view of the word of God, just read Psalm 119. Psalm 119, to hear the psalmist talk about how the word of God is like, it's sweet to him. He delights in it. It's a lamp to his feet. It's his counselor. You could even read Psalm 19. I would encourage you to read Psalm 19. Verses seven through 10. Just speaking of the word of God, it's perfect. It restores the soul. It's sure. It makes wise the simple. It enlightens the eyes. It's pure. It's right. It rejoices the heart. They're more, the words of God are more desirable than gold, sweeter than the honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. I wonder if that's our view of the word of God. If it's not, why? What is it that you think the word of God cannot do or is not doing? That he says the word of God is and does even in his word. James viewed the word of God as the voice of the living God who was good and who was generous. Remember verses 17 and 18. That good and generous God has given, given us his word. And, and when he gives us this word, it's not just some scholastic analysis of a legal text. No, it's listening to the living story through a living speech of its author. And James would refer us back to verses 17 and 18 to remember the kind of God he is. Every good and every perfect gift, everything that's good that flows to you comes from him. That's how generous he is. And he not only gives you good gifts in creation, he also gives the gift of salvation, his work of redemption. That's how good he is. James says, remember the author because it's his word that's before us. And so we are doers of the word. That's the example we are to imitate. Looks there in verse 25. It means to intently and to purposefully and to consistently pour over. Like some people will say, well, the difference in the two is that the guy looking in the mirror just sort of glances and the guy in verse 25 is pouring over the word. But actually both of those words give rise and the meanings are that they are giving sustained attention to. And so the contrast in this illustration, in this example, isn't how we look or glance at the word. It's what we do with the word that we've seen. And that's what James is wanting to make clear. How often are we giving sustained, pouring over looks of the word? Persevering in our looking, even when it's not instantly rewarding to do so. And remember who James is writing to. 
He's writing to Christians who are oppressed, enduring hardships, they're scattered. This would have been particularly helpful for these readers who were experiencing various kinds of trials. Because in the midst of trials, it's no small challenge to persevere in the reading of Scripture. But persevere we must. In the midst of trials, it's challenging for us to look at something other than our trials to consume and to hold our gaze and to put that on the Word and allow the Word to consume us and to hold our gaze. And so if you're walking through a particularly difficult season, even now, I want to just encourage you, read even if it seems dry. Pray even if it seems dry. Read even if it's in agony that you read. The strength that you need to endure suffering comes through grace-motivated doing of these liberating commands and these liberating duties. A doer who acts. Attentive listening must be accompanied by careful obedience. Growth in grace and godliness, it's not an event. It's a process. That's why we call it walking with the Lord, because oftentimes we take one step at a time. And so perhaps you're hearing this, and the Spirit is bringing about a good level of conviction, that maybe you've spent more of your time focusing on what you can learn as opposed to how you can obey what it is that you know. And if that's the case, I pray that God would bring about by his spirit some helpful uh, rhythms of repentance. But if I can just encourage you, perhaps you feel overwhelmed because you've not given much to any thought about obedience or faithfulness in a long time. And if that's you, I just want to encourage you, it would, you, you may be tempted to just write down every area that you need to grow in and think, okay, starting this week, I'm going to hit every area. It's growth in grace, one degree of glory to another. And so maybe this week, just focus on one area. Maybe for the next month, just consider one bit of truth for one area of your life and lean into that, marinate into that. Help that word permeate who you are so as to change what you do. Even, in, even now, I'm aware as I listen to sermons, I can just scribble in trying to take notes and capture every word. Good news, this sermon is recorded for you to listen to it again. And so the goal isn't to record every word or to remember everything in its entirety. The goal is just to learn something about the passage that's being taught and seek to connect that to an area of our lives. And that effect of truth over time will shape who we are and it will permeate the entirety of our lives. And when you and I change in one area, it has implications for all areas. And I love the promise at the end of verse 25. That the one who doesn't walk away willfully disregarding, but the one who looks and remembers, they will be blessed in what they do. But as I read these verses, the question that I have is, who among us who among us has done this? Who among us consistently does this? Who among us perfectly hears and receives and then obeys the word of God? I begin to think about this and I think about the hopefulness that's there. And then I look at my performance and I'm highly discouraged. And I think I can't do this. And if the promise is that blessing is attached to the one who rightly and faithfully obeys, I will never be blessed because I can't do it. And I believe James is writing to point the readers back to, to point us back to who Christ is. Jesus is the one who has perfectly heard perfectly received, and who has perfectly obeyed. 
Jesus isn't merely a hearer of the word. He is an effectual doer. Jesus doesn't hear something and walk away and willfully disregard the good that he's heard. No, Jesus is the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law which he would say points to and culminates in him. And what's the result of all of that? Jesus then is the one who has blessing. And so we look and there's a deficient of blessing, a deficiency of blessing in our lives. We can't get that blessing. And yet we will stand before the Lord and give an account not for what we, what we lack. We're going to give account for everything that we've done to sin against God. So we're in need of both something in our account, blessing, righteousness, but also someone to remove and take away the sin. And praise be to God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus the Christ. He comes to earth for a rescue mission for ruined and sin-sicked people. And that would be you and that would be me. He comes in humility. He lives perfectly. He even teaches those in Matthew chapter 7 about what it means to build their house on the secure foundation of Christ. And he says in in Matthew 7, verses 24 through 27, particularly in verse 26, you want to know whether or not your house is built on me, on the foundation of my righteousness, on all of the blessing that I have received? It's not that you are aware and you hear of my word. No, it's that you obey, you do. You build your life on my words, doing my words. This isn't a construction lesson. It's meant to show them the key to liberating joy. And some of us hear this and we think, okay, well, if uh, if you're telling me I can't do it, I'm just gonna double down and I'm gonna show you, I'm gonna prove you that I can do this. And James says, we'll see next week in chapter two, verse 10. Even if you were to keep the whole law and yet stumble at one point, you would be guilty of breaking it all. James is making a case that there is a blessing for those who were righteously perfect. And we are all aware that that would not be us. In fact, we are well aware that we are sinners deserving of God's justice and wrath and hatred against sin. And the good news of the Christian faith is that Jesus has come to give us blessing and righteousness that we don't have, to take from us wrath and judgment and condemnation for the sin that we do have. And he bore that upon the cross. He was, he, uh, Ephesians, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter five tells us that he, although he knew no sin, he became sin. Why? So that we might then become the righteousness of God. He dies absorbing the wrath of God for our sin. And he does it for, he does it as a substitute for all who would repent and believe. We get righteousness. He exhausts judgment. And on the third day, he rises triumphantly over the death and sin, picturing what everyone who repents and believes turns from their sin and trusts in him alone. He gives us a picture of what they will receive at death a gateway to everlasting life. And so the good news of James chapter one is that there is a blessing for people who do this perfectly. You will never never get that blessing unless you bow your knee in submission to Jesus Christ and you confess him as your Lord, believing that the only way you will be restored back to your creator is by his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross and his bodily resurrection on the third day. If you've not turned from your sin and you have not trusted Christ, I would plead with you, do that today. Trust Christ. Leads us to point number two. Point number two. To receive the word is to be changed by the word. To receive the word is to be changed by the word. Listen to verses 26 and 27. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. 
pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. James begins, as he turns kind of this second point, to receive the word is to be changed by the word. James begins by warning us about being deceived by our religious activities. Look at the first phrase there in verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious... The person James is thinking about thought he was religious. And yet James says that when your lifestyle contradicts your profession, you may be deceived. It's what one of my seminary professors would say often. Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. Stated belief plus actual practice equals actual belief. And James is saying there was a man who said he was religious and yet by his lifestyle contradicted that profession. And James mentions three areas of life that would help give credible witness to a life that has received the word. So he says, he begins by saying, if anyone thinks himself to be religious merely because he says something, James says, well, Here's a litmus test of sorts. These are three areas, three ways that we give credibility to a life that has received the word of God. The letter A and the second point, the area of life that would help promote a credible witness of a changed heart, A would be a controlled tongue. A controlled tongue. Verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James doesn't call us to be silent. He calls us to be wise. He calls us to not have silent tongues, but to have bridled tongues. He'll make this clear in chapter three, but our tongues possess in themselves all the untamed vigor of a wild beast and when left to themselves can do damage to other people. You see, James says, no matter what you profess, listen to how you speak. And how you speak will reveal and make clear who you are. I didn't grow up a horse enthusiast, though I did watch Mr. Ed once. The bride, the bridle there is not an option. If you want to have an enjoyable ride, particularly for novices. I'm not talking about for people who do this for a living. But if you want to have an enjoyable ride, the bridle is how you would control the horse. The bit was placed in its mouth. The bridle connected to the bit around the horse's head. And without it, the horse would be utterly unrestrained. And James is saying that our ungodly speech is uncontrolled and unrestrained. Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgressions are not lacking. You see, with words, you and I can manipulate, we can tear down, we can deceive, we can lie, we can gossip, we can be vulgar, we can be profane, and yet we can also praise God. How in the world do we praise God and curse man? It's like setting a forest ablaze. You see, the unbridled tongue reveals to us what is real in the unseen, what's really going on in our hearts. This is what Jesus says, Luke chapter six, verse 45. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Words are not just words, words are revealers. Words reveal our hearts. And our words often reveal the heart level need we have for repentance. And James is teaching us that when we worship a savior, when his word truly has taken root into our, our lives and in our souls, those who were once boastful, manipulative gossips, they're transformed into humble, encouraging truth tellers. From a deceived heart flows a deceived self-assessment. And so to my non-Christian friends that, have you considered that being a Christian is far more than a mere profession? It includes a profession, but it's more than a profession. It's also far more than mere external duties. In fact, the Bible, Bible actually condemns that kind of life. 
that makes mere professions and runs through mere duties. The invitation for you, non-Christian, is to experience a savior who is powerful over sin and death. So powerful that he can give us a new heart and a new life that really does make discernible differences in how we live. And for my Christian brothers and sisters, I just want you to know the gospel is not only good news that sort of gets us what we lack in terms of blessing, in terms of having God's anger uh, absorbed because of our sin. The gospel isn't just giving us what we lack. The gospel then gives us, for all who repent and believe, the gospel then gives us the spirit of the living God that lives within us, and he begins to work out his life in and through us. Your speech and my speech can change because of the gospel. So the gospel isn't just good news whenever you're lost. It's also the hope and the basis for how you will do this how you can control your tongue. You can, can do it. You can do that when the Spirit of God lives within you. B, second area. Not only will you have a controlled tongue, you will have a care for the vulnerable. You will have a care for the vulnerable. James is showing the, these are the marks of a life that shows itself to have received the word. A care for the vulnerable, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. James calls us to care for the needy in their affliction. And this is a theme that runs all throughout scripture. Psalm 68, verse five, makes clear that God is the protector of the vulnerable. And he calls this group of suffering believers to look outside of their trials, to be preoccupied with something other than the inner pain that we feel, but to look at the outer pain and see how other people are vulnerable and are in need of care. It's easy to love those who can reciprocate. And Jesus says, Tax, the world does that. Luke chapter six, verse 32. I praise God for the efforts that our church has made in order to grow in caring for widows. And those who maybe much like widows have either been abandoned, have been destitute and forgotten. I'm thankful for the, the strides that our church has taken and is currently taking in the terms of adoption, in the areas of adoption and foster care. I pray that Covenant Life, not for Covenant Life's namesake, but because we're so enthralled by the God who protects the vulnerable, I pray that we would be a church who does this, that we would love the hurting, that we would love the least. I pray that unwed mothers would show up and they, they wouldn't feel judged by us because when everyone else wants to turn their backs on those who are destitute, those who are down and out, I pray that we would be a church that leans in and loves. I pray that in the days ahead, we would excel still more. You see, if, if Darwinism were true, then we would only care for people of our own genetic makeup. And we would only associate ourselves with people who can do things for us. But Darwinism isn't true and the gospel is, which means then that when the rest of the world says you don't belong, the church says, yes, we will come and love. And the good news, Christian brothers and sisters, is the gospel, the gospel makes this even possible because the gospel gives you something that you have received from Christ that you don't now need to receive from other people. And maybe even for the first time, you're freed up not to view relationships as what you can receive from them, but how you can give to them. And then see, last point, a controlled tongue, a care for the vulnerable and a distinction from the world. A distinction from the world. The world is anything and everything that's at odds with the lordship of Jesus. And finally, in verse 27, he says to keep oneself unstained by the world. Keeping oneself unstained by the world for James is, is where true godliness resides. True godliness entails an inner life, an embracing of truth, a transformation of heart, a personal holiness. And then it manifests itself in how we care for other people and how we, how we avoid the things of this world, the sinful things. You see, James says that it's not 
We can't say, I have justification, been made right with God, and I don't have sanctification, am growing in holiness. James says those two things must go together. We must remain distinct from the world. Charles Spurgeon, writing some 175 years ago, says this. I believe that one of the reasons why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Put your finger on any prosperous page in the church's history and I will find a little marginal note reading thus. In this age, men and women of faith could readily see where the church began and the world ended. I wonder if people around us can readily see where we are distinct from an unbelieving world. And the gospel frees us. It allows us by giving us the spirit of the living God residing within us to oppose worldliness. Christian brothers and sisters, you and I are without excuse if we're not doing this. Obedience is the hallmark of a true child of faith. It was the obedience of Jesus that accomplished life for all who would trust in him. And it's the fuel for how we can carry that out. We all hate fakes. We all hate fakes, which is why true Christians are not like Waldo, hard to spot in a crowd full of people. No, in fact, true Christians are altogether new people living a life that bears the marks of authentic faith in ways that can be seen, in ways that can be heard and in ways that can be felt. I pray that the gospel would motivate us to become and to make disciples who are authentic in the faith. Let's pray. God, your word has gone forth. We've been confronted We've been commanded, we've been warned. We've been given illustrations to avoid, we've been given examples to emulate. And you've given us a clear picture of what a life looks like that has received your word. And so I pray that in this moment of silence, that you would make clear to us how we ought to respond. Let us please, for our good and for your glory, not walk away from our time now unchanged. So speak to us, we pray.